Hello and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Tariq Megarisi. Tariq is a policy fellow with the North Africa and Middle East program at the ECFR, the European Council on Foreign Relations. He's a political analyst and researcher who specializes in North African affairs and politics, governance, and developments in the Arab world, and I'm pleased to say he's a regular contributor to our Arab Digest podcast. Every week we feature experts like Tarek. Our podcasts have no sponsors and no advertising. If you'd like to support a truly independent voice, consider making a small donation. Details at ArabDigest.org. I've asked Tarek Megarisi in today to update us on the situation in Libya and Tunisia. Good to have you back, Tarek. Thank you as always for inviting me on, Bill. Our focus today is on Tunisia and Libya, but before we get there, I just want to get your thoughts on Sudan. Two generals, Al-Burhan and Hameti, squaring off civilians caught in the crossfire. Thousands of foreigners caught too and now being evacuated, at least uh, some of them. As the situation in Sudan continues to deteriorate, what's your sense of how that conflict is likely to develop? And especially as it seems that we're beginning to see foreign players being pulled into it. Yeah, well, um, you know, I'm not a... uh... I'm not a Sudan expert uh, in the slightest. So I'll speak less of kind of the internal dynamics of of how things might play out between the two warring factions. But I will say that there have been some some dynamics that I've noticed, uh, which are kind of familiar to other conflicts. And so, you know, perhaps we can learn some lessons from there in in terms of how these familiar uh, dynamics are now echoing around uh, Sudan's attempted transition. Um, I mean, well, firstly, you said in the framing that, uh, you know, we're seeing foreign players being drawn into it. I would say that foreign players have been intrinsic to the conflict um, as we see it today. And perhaps I'm being too much of, of a Libya buff here, but I really see two key similarities. Uh, firstly, is in how, you know, the popular will for a particular transition was perverted, firstly, by these generals uh, and by these these very self-serving Two military uh, leaders have, have have made it kind of all about themselves, and the diplomats and the diplomatic process around them, you know, led by the UN, has kind of uh, pandered to them and has uh, mollified them and allowed them to lead the transition uh, when it was very clear that you know they had no interest of of satisfying the will of the people, uh, and we see this increasingly across the region these days, whereby Diplomats concoct a sort of pantomime, uh, and then they play up to this fake process rather than engage with, with the specificities of, of what's actually going on in the ground and, and with the, the people who they are engaging with. And the second is how this, you know, is not a Sudanese issue anymore. It's a, it's a regional issue. Uh, on one side, the military has very close contact and support uh, from Egypt, once again, like in Libya, whereby the Egyptians like to see a military institution in charge, and they will try to create one if one does not exist. Uh, and then on the other side, uh, with Hameti, you see a, a kind of regional backing, whereby a particular warlord not in control of the capital is given support by by the UAE, by Wagner, and so on, and then eventually breaks from the diplomatic pantomime uh, to try and make an assault on power. And for anybody who's followed Libya over the last few years, that will that will sound awfully familiar. So really, Sudan seems like it's an issue that is succumbing to 
the very same dynamics that we've witnessed elsewhere in the region, which speaks to our inability to to stop repeating the past, um, but also, unfortunately, makes it seem like things will deteriorate in Sudan for the foreseeable future. Yeah, as you say, a very dangerous dynamic. But, but let me ask you this. Uh, Libya shares a border with Sudan. And is there a potential for spillover? I, I'm asking that, Tarek, because the Russian mercenary Wagner Group is very active in Sudan, involved with, engaged with Hameti, Wagner, active in Libya. What do you think? I think given the ties between Libyan groups and Sudan, and obviously the the relationships of Sudanese fighters being in Libya, the neighboring region, the the importance of Sudan for various Libyan groups as a, a smuggling connection for fuel going towards Sudan, for migrants going the other way. I think that it is entirely natural for any prolonged conflict in Sudan to affect uh, Libya. But perhaps before I go on to the Libyan dynamics, uh, just a bit about about Wagner. Um, again, you know, perhaps I'm just haunted by my experiences from the last 10 years, but the relationship between Wagner and, and Hameti seems very similar to the relationship with, with Haftar and in Libya over the years building up to the uh, war on Tripoli in 2019. So, you know, you hear very interesting reports from Sudani analysts and, and, and experts, you know, talking about how Wagner had been deploying special comms and disinformation platforms for Hameti, uh, the training that they've given their troops. Um, but then at the same time, they do this all under this banner of, you know, well, Russia hasn't really picked a side in the conflict. Uh, we're just there to help the overall situation and engage with groups and fight terrorism and so on. And that, you know, again, feels awfully familiar to me. Uh, I don't think we're in a situation where Wagner is going to be a frontline force, uh, at least not yet. Perhaps things will deteriorate there and the Emiratis will nudge them towards the front line as they did in Libya. But but for now, at least, we can still see very similar dynamics. And the last point on this kind of comms or the disinformation side is that, you know, you can look at Hameti's very well-manicured Twitter account uh, to see the messaging that he's putting out. And a key centerpiece of this messaging is always, you know, well, I'm fighting the Islamists. I'm trying to rid Sudan of the Islamists. Uh, and once again, this is a, a very familiar uh, narrative point for perhaps all of the counter-revolutions that we've seen across the MENA region uh, from 2013 onwards. Uh, so again, it looks like this is part of a, a concerted uh, regional effort or multilateral uh, conflict rather than just a Sudani one. And this again bears relevance to what's happening in Libya, uh, because the, the Libyan wing of this multilateral counter-revolutionary, whatever you'd like to call it, uh, effort is... Field Marshal Haftar. And Haftar has been relying on troops that are either aligned with Hameti uh, or that draw from the same Darfur region uh, as Hameti has his base from. Haftar has been relying on them for kind of key guard duties, uh, be it in the, the oil crescent or key military bases. Uh, they're often a liaison and a, a, a partner force with Wagner groups there important for, for smuggling operations to which Haftar gets his money, but also as a kind of shock troops, um, you know, with the racism that's prevalent. Uh, Sudani forces are often looked at as, as expendable and, and frontline forces. Um, so when Haftar's children mainly have had to deploy forces in the south, for example, to 
to kind of flex their muscles and maintain control, Sudanese have been an important facet of that. And so if we end up in a prolonged conflict in Sudan, whereby forces start to trickle back the other way, then that creates almost a vacuum uh, amongst Haftar's forces. You know, Haftar's forces are weakened enough uh, as it is. And yeah, this might tip the power balance and so provoke a conflict of opportunism in Libya itself. You know, that's very interesting about uh, Haftar using uh, Sudanese troops and really using them, well, almost as uh, cannon fodder in some of the uh, exercises that they're, they're carrying out. But but since we are talking about Khalifa Hafta, the, the, the warrior, now it seems to me, Tarek, and you will correct me if I'm wrong, that there's been a bit of a bounce back for Haftar with all the maneuverings that have been going on. Have I got that right? Or, or, or is he still uh, a marginalized figure? I think he is, as he has always been, um, kind of a guy on the outside with enough international backing to make him relevant across the board and, and kind of making a nuisance for himself and and always trying to kind of inject himself into these political schemes. You know, he's kind of like one of those cartoon characters whereby every night they, they think up of a new scheme uh, through which to take over Libya. Uh, and no matter how often it goes wrong, he... He never seems to lose favor. So there was a period, you know, just after the war on Tripoli ended disastrously for him, where it looked like things might go south for him. Um, but his international backers kind of stabilized the scene. They have renormalized him. He has been an important part of the kind of political architecture uh, that has been put in place in Libya by the international diplomatic community after the war. Uh, he's been a key part of various electoral pushes, um, despite his his attempts to spoil them. And, you know, perhaps now he is having slightly more uh, of a good time, shall we say, than he was before, or slightly more importance, because the new UN envoy, um, Abdullah Batali, is, seems to like him. You know, he seems to have this affinity for, for military uniformed personnel. Uh, he's visited Haftar quite a lot. Uh, the centerpiece of Libya diplomacy right now is not so much elections, but the creation of a, a joint Libyan force between Haftar's people and, and various key units in Western Libya, uh, which is also being encouraged by, by the US. And, and so, yeah, because of the, the changing political dynamics, um, the importance given to the US of kicking out Wagner and this, this focus on Libyan security dynamics, uh, yeah, you can say that Haftar is more important than he was before. Mm, interesting. He is a, he is a real survivor. Been on the scene for a long time. And of course, is still a, an American citizen. Um, <laughs> you mentioned you mentioned Batali, the uh, UN Special Representative. Uh, he gave a presentation to the UN Security Council on 18th of April, calling for the withdrawal of all foreign forces in order that elections can go ahead. Now, just remind us who, who those foreign forces are. We've got the Wagner Group, as you mentioned, but but. You know, remind us, and then I'll ask you, is that realistic? Well, um, no, to be frank. I'm, I'm not sure it is very realistic, but it's a good kind of political cover or a, a good rallying call to try to drive events on the ground and perhaps pick up some momentum towards various stabilizing dynamics, um, which is why I think there is a reliance on there. But you know, I do think that Batali believes to a certain extent that he, he is onto a winner in terms of this joint force idea. 
you know, just after his his kind of uh, speech to the UN, uh, he came back to Libya, did a little round, uh, tried to put together this kind of uh, joint force idea, or, or or tried to gather momentum for it with with meetings in Egypt and and so on, and then he toured around Libya's southern neighboring states, so you know, Chad, Niger, and and Sudan to kind of um, sell this idea and, and talk about how it was going to work. Because, you know, we have different categories of foreign forces in Libya. We have those from the southern neighboring states um, who have been camped out there for a while. Uh, and again, you know, it's quite a, a messy or interconnected situation here, whereby groups from Chad and Sudan uh, have fought for, for both sides. Um, groups from Niger, a kind of cross-border um cross-border forces uh, or they draw from cross-border tribes and as we see from Sudan again kind of forcing them into a return can have destabilizing effects for their home countries Uh, and we actually saw this in in Chad in perhaps a greater way a couple of years back whereby a lot of the anti-government militias that were in Libya decided due to the the relative peace and a number of other dynamics to leave Libya en masse and return to Chad and, and try to uh, usurp the presidency there. And whilst they didn't succeed in a military sense, they did kill that president um, in battle. So yeah, just forcing forces out without a wider plan um, can be quite destabilizing. Um, but if we talk about the bigger groups who are there, mainly Russia's Wagner group and, and Turkey's um, quite broad military presence on the ground, I think it's going to be difficult in a different sense to get rid of them. You know, Turkey is really quite well embedded at this point um, across Western Libya. Uh, they see themselves as a as a key player. I think many Libyans, at least in, in the West, would agree with them. And and the, the Western world is, is starting to come on board with this idea more and more that they might be useful for security sector reform or, or building in the future. And so the Turks will say, you know, we have agreements with uh, Libyan governments in order to, to be there. We have relationships with the official armed forces in Tripoli and so on. So I see no reason why we should leave. Um, but perhaps there is another conversation to be had there about, you know, all these Syrian forces on the ground and Turkish military personnel who are there who are not trainers or are not there for, for a Libyan cause. But we would require a legitimate sovereign Libyan government in order to have that conversation. Uh, lastly, uh, and I'm sorry if this has been a bit of a meandering response, um, is the Wagner Group. Uh, and, you know, given the events in Ukraine, Russia is, is back to being public enemy number one. And so whilst the Western world was quite blasé about Wagner and Russia as they entrenched in Libya over the last few years, this is suddenly a very big issue again, especially in the eyes of the United States. And I do believe, you know, the visits um, from, from Bill Burns, the... Uh, director of the CIA and, and from senior officials in the Biden administration to Libya, to Haftar and, and to Tripoli over the last few months are, are kind of trying to drive this idea of a joint force between Eastern and Western Libyan factions um, with the overarching purpose of of leveraging out Wagner uh, from key military campments, um, such as in, in the city of Sirt, which is in central Libya on the coast, you know, only a few hundred kilometers away from from a NATO HQ in Sicily, uh, but also from their presence um, where they can exert influence or control over a lot of Libyan oil installations and and oil fields and and so on. So yeah, the foreign forces I don't think will go anywhere 
anytime soon. Um, I think Batali is using this quite cynically as, as a driver to try to energize his own process. But I am concerned that his absence of, of any kind of broader framework for how he would like to use this joint force, how he would like to put it under any kind of a political architecture and so on, means that it is perhaps more likely to end up in the Sudan scenario, uh, whereby you know the UN empowers military leaders, um, and then they end up fighting each other to the detriment of the country, and in any kind of stabilizing, sustainable, robust initiative uh, for either Libya's security or political sectors. Mm, yeah, and the Americans, I think, are looking at places like Burkina Faso and Central African Republic, where Wagner is very busy and very much engaged. And that's a concern. And as you say, a, a further concern, uh, Libya has already suffered so much uh, since the overthrow of Gaddafi. Uh, I want to ask you just briefly about the elections. I mean, you know, we've talked about the elections before and, and how without the proper uh, safeguards in place, the elections themselves will simply perpetuate the elites in power and nothing will change for the Libyan people. Look, it's a it's a very precarious path that Libya has to tread if it is to get to a more sustainable place. But if you look at, at all the various, the, the variables, um, the, the prospects in the political scene as it stands today, I, I genuinely believe that if a concerted effort is not made to have credible elections in Libya uh, and a transfer of power away from the current political elite, Libya will not only sink back into a new divided status quo, um, but then it will start to, to produce the kind of destabilizing crisis that we've seen over the last 10 years, whereby foreign forces entrench, migrants come out, uh, it, you know, the instability infects other countries and so on. It is hard to have credible elections in Libya right now, but it is not impossible. You know, real effort and pressure has to be placed on the current political elite. Supportive forces in Libya have to be empowered. And I should remind you that, you know, Libya is a country of six or seven million people, uh, which is being held hostage by about 500 of their citizens who are in positions of power and authority and want to keep the kind of chaotic status quo when the rest of the population desperately want to progress towards being some kind of normal, stable, prosperous state. And we do have a problem whereby either there is a lack of focus uh, from the international community, uh, and this, you know, what we've been talking about with the with the US and this focus on the Wagner group is a great example of this. So, you know, the, the current priority is Wagner. So the US sees a policy uh, which can help to leverage Wagner out. But the kind of bottom line of, of Wagner or of any of these particular dynamics that become the flavor of the month in Libya is that they can only truly be resolved if you have a Libyan government in place that is legitimate and considered broadly le legitimate by the population, uh, is sovereign and can govern the entire country. And the only route before us to creating such an entity right now is through elections. So we should be fully focused on how to make these elections as credible and as robust as possible. That should be the center and the main kind of scaffolding of Libya policy. But unfortunately, it's not. So we seem to yeah go around in circles, depending on the flavor of the month. You're listening to the Herb Digest podcast with me, William Law, 
and the European Council on Foreign Relations, Middle East and North Africa expert, Tariq Megarisi. Our podcasts have no sponsors and no advertising. If you'd like to support a truly independent voice, consider making a small donation. Details at ArabDigest.org. Tarek, let's uh, stick with North Africa and uh, Libya's neighbor, Tunisia. I want to talk about the relentless way in which President Kais Saeed is dismantling Tunisia's democratic experiment. What do you make of his recent arrest of the uh, main opposition leader and the head of the Islamist Ennahda party, uh, Rashid Khanoushi? You know, it's not just the arrest of uh, Khanoushi himself, who, is, who has often been kind of picked on, been uh, brought in for questioning, been roughed up publicly, because again, Ghais Saeed, like other counter-revolutionary forces in the region, like to use the Islamists as their bête noire. But the kind of the broader activities that went round around that. So Khanoushi was arrested as the head of Ennahda. Other senior Ennahda officials were arrested. The National Salvation Front, which was a, a broad political front meant to challenge um, Saeed's anti-democratic political maneuverings, uh, has been forcibly shut down. And so, yeah, we really see this as a kind of tightening of the authoritarian screws um, in Tunisia. I mean, it's always been clear that Saeed does not like uh, Ennahda. He does not like or respect the Islamist faction. He likes to use them as a kind of punching bag and as a populist tool uh, in order to get uh, political support when things look bad. And that's partially because of the, the lowering popularity or the dwindling popularity of Ennahda, who as a, a main or a leading party in Tunis or in Tunisia over the last 10 years or so, uh, is broadly considered as, as, as to blame, or at least as having a big burden of responsibility for the economic and political decline of the country prior to, to Said. So Said kind of smartly picks on that uh, as a populist tool. And, you know, he also does not like dissent. He doesn't like to be questioned in any way. Uh, and the National Salvation Front and the Nahda uh, were all kind of poking at the illegitimacy of Said's political project. Uh, you know, Said came in, he, he rammed through a new constitution without almost any public consultation in like a completely shambolic process last summer with about a 30% turnout. And, and now he's... He's put together a Potemkin parliament, whereby the turnout in the elections was, I think, around 10%. You know, it's the turnout for these elections was so low that it is the, the, the second lowest turnout for a national election in democratic history since 1945. So they have been kind of leading the political pushback against Said. And Said, now that his, his political program is in place, he's got his... He's got his new constitution. He's got his uh, Potemkin parliament. I think he feels emboldened to now get rid of his adversaries. And, and this is a, a very clear warning that he is shutting down the broader political space, which will be hugely damaging if things continue to deteriorate in Tunisia, which I, I strongly believe that they will due to Saeed's inability to govern. Yeah, yeah. And, and you make a good point about him not liking criticism. He's also been jailing journalists and and, and threatening online bloggers who've criticized his uh, increasingly one-man rule. But but let me ask you this, uh, Tarek, because this Islamist bogeyman keeps coming around. And of course, the person 
who's pushed that trope most strongly and and I think quite assiduously is Mohammed Zayed, the, the president of the UAE, the crown prince of uh, the leader rather of Abu Dhabi. How much is foreign influence engaging in this deconstruction of uh, of Tunisia's uh, democratic experiment? Yeah, I I think that it's an interesting question because you know as you mentioned there are there are various dynamics which are are extremely similar or, or are an intrinsic part of of regional dynamics or of the regional counter revolution uh, which are highly resonant in Tunisia um, such as this kind of focus on on Islamism uh, the return of the army as a driving force to roll back change because you know the the role of the army and the security services in enforcing Said and and you know transforming him from being an angry old man who shouts at parliament to an actual dictator is perhaps underreported on but on the other side you know there are very tunisian dynamics which have propelled Said into the presidency in the first place which created a groundswell of support for his initial uh, freezing of the parliament which you know, gave him enough leeway and time for him to to do what he did uh, in terms of the political changes to the country. So yeah, um, I think he, the Said coup uh, and the counter revolution has taken place amidst a regional change, or is very much a part of the growing regional environment of of rolling back democratic change, of going towards authoritarianism. There are strong rumors of, you know, heavy Egyptian involvement or good relations between the Egyptian military and the Tunisian military in the build-up to Said's coup, uh, which may have played a part in, in helping to organize that. But in terms of direct interference and involvement now, we don't actually see very much of it. Um, so, you know, Tunisia's overarching problem today is the economy, uh, and Said keeps going on about how golf friends will, will come and help him. I believe that on the sidelines of, of a, a broader conference in Saudi Arabia, he he kind of reached out to some golf friends like the Emiratis, the Kuwaitis, the Saudis, uh, to give him some support, but it's not been forthcoming. The most direct support that he has received is, is from Algeria. Uh, and I think that there's a case to be made that, uh, you know, Said models himself off Tabun. Abdul Majid uh, Tabun, the Algerian president. Uh, especially how uh, he kind of seized power back for the state in the aftermath of the Harak, which was this long Algerian uh, protest movement to, to create a, a more representative system. And ironically enough, the most support he gets is from the Europeans who are giving budget support to ensure that Tunisia does not hit uh, an economic apocalypse. So yeah. While Said is very much a product of his environment and a product of the regional environment that is driven from the UAE and from Egypt and so on, I think that, yeah, there are very Tunisian dynamics from the security services to broader political discontent to an economic catastrophe that have allowed Said the space to to be who he has become. That's interesting. So the, the outside forces have have kind of been able to stand back a little bit and and watch this scenario play out uh, presumably to their advantage, although not to the advantage of the Tunisian people, particularly if this economic apocalypse, as you put it, which could well happen, is looming. 
But but let me ask you finally, Tarek, uh, because we have this common thread, don't we? Certainly between Sudan and Tunisia, where you had popular protests, largely peaceful, that led to the overthrow of dictators. Libya, somewhat of a different situation, of course. But that yearning amongst all three countries, and indeed elsewhere in the, in, in the Middle East, North Africa, for free and open societies and responsible and accountable governments, it's shared by them all. And and it's right across the region, as I said. And I'm just wondering, do you think that that impulse, that drive, the Arab Spring, the popular protests, has it been quashed? And if it has, how culpable are liberal democracies? Are we in Europe, here in the UK, in America, how culpable are we for this uh, destruction of the efforts to secure accountable governance in the Middle East and North Africa? Yeah, um, that is quite a big question and, and a multifaceted one. And I'll, I'll try to deal with each constituent part in and of itself. I mean, it's not just Sudan and, and Tunis, but also uh, Libya, Syria, Yemen. And you mean, do you remember when, when Yemen was praised as a, a model of, of transition just after Ali Abdullah Saleh um, had his kind of popular uprising against him? Uh, this is something which is indicative to a region whereby the social contract that has been in place since the 1950s or so has has fundamentally failed uh, in every sense of the word. And people wanted to push for something new, uh, wanted to push for more representative politics, whereby their needs would be met for more open societies where they wouldn't be punished or whereby they could have freedom of association, freedom of speech, etc. And yeah, whereby they could take part in the economy, um, whereby they could, you know, be the masters of their own future and, and, and have some ability to shape their surroundings, to shape their livelihoods, to shape their politics. Uh, and none of these things have changed. Um, you know, Sudan and Tunis have been less violent than some of the others, but I think in each and every case, and I include Algeria in this as well, actually, um, in each and every case, the the violence of the street or the violence of the population is directly relative to the violence of the regime uh, in terms of, of trying to protect itself and, and trying to prevent change from, from, from happening. And I think it was the surprise factor of, of 2011 that allowed these changes to initially take place. Um, but since then, and this has been kind of a common theme of, of our chat today, Bill, is the, the counter-revolution, perhaps starting in Egypt in, in 2013, that has been gradually trying to push the genie back into the bottle. And I think that this comes from a, a place of fear, whereby you know, the, the Islamist trope is used, you know, be careful of democracy in the Arab world, or you'll get uh, evil Islamists who will bring terrorists upon us all. But I think it's more fundamental than that. There is a fear from these dictatorships that if we can have examples of successful representative politics and a different mode of, of governance and a successful new economic or a political economy model, then they might start to ask these same questions in the Gulf states as well. Um, you know, who gives these uh, regimes the right to spend the money of the state as they do? And it also means that it, it becomes an uncontrollable space whereby the Arab street uh, has more of a say in, in foreign policy and regional policy and economic policy, which is where a lot of the strength comes from. Probably gone on a bit too much on that point. But what I wanted to hit at is that the counter-revolution might have succeeded in, 
in stopping the change which started in 2011. But we've reverted back to a status quo whereby, you know, 90% of the population or a huge chunk of the population is fundamentally unhappy. You know, they have no economic prospects. They feel as if they cannot influence the politics of their country at all. They feel like they cannot influence their own destiny at all. And so it becomes inevitable that they will once again uh, try to regain control of their of their lives and of their futures. And what's the response going to be in in that sense? You know, the Emiratis especially, but but others in the region, they like to talk about the Chinese model. They say, you know, democracy is not so important as long as you have good governance. Well, great, but there is no good governance in Egypt and Tunis and Libya and Sudan and Yemen and so on and so forth which means that we will end up back at square one. So we can say that the movement started in 2011 have been quashed, but the fundamental drivers of what caused 2011 have not been quashed. Uh, and in fact, we see it um, expressing itself in different ways in, in other countries that might not have been a part of the, the wave of 2011. Look at Lebanon and look at Iraq and so on, where disgruntled populations are are starting to protest more and, and starting to try to find alternatives. So all we've really done is is try to prevent change from from occurring. And if I can be a bit philosophical at this point, you know, the one constant of this world we are always told is change. Um, so trying to to keep the entire MENA region stuck in the 1950s um, is, I think, a, a very foolish policy because it, you know, if we are ignoring change or trying to stop change instead of trying to to co-opt or work with or facilitate change, then we are always on the wrong side of history and when we are kind of always doomed to fail. Um, and on the last point of, you know, how culpable are the liberal democracies uh, of Europe, the UK, the USA um, in the rollback which has happened, I think more culpable than we like to admit. Um, you know, just as I say that the, the autocracies of the MENA region are, are stuck in the past and are unwilling to change from the past. I think, you know, if we look at perhaps not the broader systems, you know, the foreign ministries and so on, but at the halls of power um, in London and Paris and Rome and in Washington, D.C., uh, I think that they're also stuck in the past um, in the sense that they believe in this this reductive model of, of strongmen, of, you know, the Middle East, like South America, like Africa, like Asia, is not like ex-communist uh, Europe, whereby you know we can grow a common democracy like us, and there are people like us. But no, they are they are places that uh, require a dictator to rule them. Uh, frankly, for us, our foreign policy would be easier if we just have a single point of contact who we can lean on uh, in order to get whatever we want from these countries. Um, and, you know, you can see this really bluntly now um, in the Italian relationship with, with Tunisia and Qais Saeed. Uh, Everybody is putting their hair out saying, what is this guy going to do to the economy? Uh, what's going to happen if the economy fails? And, and the Italians are effectively blocking for him, saying, well, you know, we want this guy to help us on migration. And I think that this reliance on on strongmen or this whole notion that, you know, having and propping up dictators uh, is a is a route towards stability. Uh, and I think that tie is the most important thing here between strongmen or dictators and stability, because this is what we are always told is, is the realistic policy. You know, it's just the way of the world, whereas your push for democracy is, is too idealistic and so on. But I would really strongly argue that dictators are a one-way ticket to instability, um, because the things that they do to stay in power 
creates deep fractures among state, society, economy, which means that countries can never transition, they can never change, they can never grow, they can never satisfy their populations. And, and this creates you know, either the drivers of a revolution or a drivers of mass migration, um, neither of which is something that uh, the Western world really wants to see. You know, if we look at the role in, in propping up the, the military actors in Sudan, defending Qais Saeed at the beginning of his coup and, and in, even now, defending and, and supporting and driving Khalifa Haftar to try to create a, a military uh, state in Libya, uh, the support given to Abdel Fattah al-Sisi in Egypt, even as he kind of locks up as much of the country as he can fit into a prison. Um, you know, they all of these figures are or depend on support from from the Western world in order to be successful. Uh, and as you mentioned, kind of slyly in response to to one of my points, Haftar is a U.S. citizen, so he's always off the the list of potential sanctions. But uh, his crimes as a U.S. citizen um, are, are never actually followed up upon. So yeah, just as I think the autocracies of the of the MENA region need to have a more modern and more fluid policy response to what's going on and, and, and a more realistic vision for the political economy of their region, I think that the Western world really needs to grow up and, and move beyond this kind of reductive, slightly racist, strongman approach to, to foreign policy and to, yeah, again, it might be a bit more difficult, it might be a lot more complex, um, but to, to try to, to grow popular governments or representative governments or democratic governments um, in the regions or in the countries with which they would like to have a relationship or, as in the case of North Africa and Europe, parts of the world that they are intrinsically and deeply tied to by virtue of geography. Sorry if that was a bit long, long-winded. Uh, you scratched a nerve, which you might have realized. No, 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 realized. no. Listen, I think, I th- I think you, you, you touch on many, many points, uh, Tarek, uh, not least the element of racism in all of this, the assumption that the people of the Middle East and North Africa really don't deserve, don't need, can't sustain democratic governance is, I think, inherently racist. And and I do think that, as you also touch on, Europe has a huge stake in North Africa and a stake that it seems to be um, very short term about. You mentioned Italy and, and their response there. Keep the migrants out. Keep Kais Saeed in power. These are very short term opportunistic well and as you made the point ultimately non-solutions because that will that determination will continue particularly given the state of the economies of many of these countries and indeed the issues of climate change and we could go on for a long time couldn't we Tarek? but i'm probably going to draw a close <laughs> now and i'm going to get you back another time but, but thank you again once again a really fascinating conversation thank you bill for uh for bringing me on and, and yeah, for being patient with me as I, I, I talk through some of these uh, some of these issues with you. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Tariq Megarisi. Tariq is a policy fellow with the North Africa and Middle East program at the ECFR, the European Council on Foreign Relations. Since we launched our podcast three years ago, it's been listened to more than 130,000 times in countries right around the world. So, a big thanks to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud, or Amazon. 
I hope you're enjoying the podcasts, which we bring you with no advertising and no sponsors. We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa. You can support our independent voice through a donation. Details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. When you go to our website, you can also find out about our daily newsletter and how to get a free trial. The newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts and commentators, contributors like Tedek. Check us out on ArabDigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Our regular listeners will have noticed that we've moved the podcast to midweek and we'll be putting it out on Wednesdays from now on. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading, essential listening from independent sources.